Amen. Amen. Scott, thanks for um, the cool breeze. So it's, <laughs> no, not your fault. Um, this is probably uh, too much information for a sermon, but um, you know the um, the ladies' deodorant that says um, "strong enough for a man, pH balance for a woman." Yeah, I had to use that this morning because I ran out of deodorant. And of all the days to test that theory, we'll see. <laughs> Let me pray for us, and y'all can, um, yeah, rebuke me afterward. Father, um, we are so grateful, Lord, of how you orchestrate things for us and for our good, um, that you are ever mindful of your covenant of grace to us through Christ, even when we are unmindful. And so we thank you for being faithful no matter what. God, would you open this text to us? Would you make it glorious in our sight as it ought to be? And, um, and give us joy. Give us joy in these things that are written as examples to us who believe in Christ. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so you're in Genesis 20. And let me explain, uh, just like I did last week, about the importance of expository preaching. Expository preaching, going through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, lands you in some texts that are not altogether lovely to our sight originally. Um, last week was actually an easier text, even though it dealt with a scummier sin. But it was easier because we can say, well, it's Lot. He's like that guy, right? We get a pass um, for him screwing things up. But this now we're dealing with Abraham, the father of the faith, and he's going to fall on his face again. And so this text really does. Uh, some, some people have said this is one of the hardest texts to to understand and to exposit in the entire book of Genesis because, again, the father of the faith falls on his face. And so if I were going to put a, um, a title on this chapter, I would say something like old habits die hard, right? We've seen Abraham do this very same thing again. One of my favorite preachers said uh, he calls this text an eloquent commentary on the mercy of God. And it's so true. What's amazing about this, right? And this is just God's kindness to us. So I've been looking at this text all week and then Trey comes up. We, we didn't get to meet this week, so we didn't get to look at the text together. But he comes up and what God had laid on his heart to, to read to you was Psalm 106. Where, and, and as he read, I'm like, oh my gosh, something clicked that I hadn't seen. This is, in a lot of ways, a redo of the first time that Abram lies about Sarah, and she ends up in the harem of a pagan king. It's the second time. But it's very interesting that it's in a different place. The first time was in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God did something amazing for Abraham. And now he's in Philistine. He's, he's in the area of the Philistines. So it's a, it's a, a precursor picture of what Israel is going to go through. God does something marvelous for them. In Egypt, humbles Pharaoh, delivers them out. And then when they go to, to uh, the land of Canaan and uh, interact with Philistines, they forget what he did in Egypt and they fail the same ways that they did in Egypt. Abraham is going to go through this again as a, as a precursor to the coming uh, dealings with, with Israel and with the land of Canaan. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you some running commentary just so you can kind of see some of the... Um, glories and scum of this text and then uh, 
towards the end, I want to I think about how this applies to us and then how it helps us to know our Christ more. So you're in chapter 20, verse 1. We'll just kind of run through it together. From there, uh, from there, meaning the Oaks of Mamre, that's where uh, Abram has been. So we've just seen the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he leaves, but we're not told why. I think the text reveals it eventually. But focus on that word journey. So he left where he was and he went into a new location, which for a sojourner is kind of scary. You're in a place where you're fine. You've been fine. Nobody's attacked you. So why are you moving? No famine is mentioned. What's going on? Why is he moving? We're not told. But he journeys toward the territory of the Negev. That's in the south country. And he lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. That's Philistia. So this is the Jewish people's first interaction with the Philistines. And in verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. One of my favorite professors at DTS, uh, generationally, we'll say. His, uh, he would always say, a half-truth told as a whole truth is a whole lie. Abraham says she's my sister, and we're going to hear later on that that's partially true. But he doesn't tell it in a way that's true. He tells just enough of the truth to conceal what's going on and to lie and to deceive. He says of Sarah, uh, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. The same thing that happens when they go into, uh, into Egypt. Now, let me uh, practice a diversion here really quick. Um, so many people come and they say, why, why would Sarah, who's 100 years old, why would... Abimelech said, hey, there's a hottie. I think I'll have her in my harem. Well, a couple of things um, are probably all true. First of all, uh, the, the text of Genesis does say that they're getting up and past the birthing age. That's, that's mentioned several times. But we're also told that they lived quite a bit longer. Abram and Sarai lived quite a bit longer. I think Abram lives like 120 some odd years. And so if you halved that, midlife for Abram would have been about 60. Right? So... There's uh, there's a chance that Sarah is about halfway along the course of her life. Um, But probably more importantly, what is it that causes Sarah to be so beautiful in the eyes of the world? Um, I would venture to guess that um, pagan femininity set next to godly femininity is a very ugly thing. Right. Just give you a challenge. Most of you, when you go through the... um, grocery store aisle and there's all of the uh, what 30, 40 years ago would have been called pornography that's like on the um, on the cover of magazines. Most of you avert your eyes, but I would just challenge you if you're able to look at them not as a luster, but as a anthropologist and look and say, what is this culture preaching about femininity? What looks beautiful to us? And it's always as little amount of clothes as you can get. And there's all of these things that they're trying to portray as beautiful. And then you put that beside a godly woman who knows the Lord Christ and has joy exploding and service and other centered glory. And it's not even close. I think Sarah is a godly woman that that Abimelech is looking and seeing that in her. And so he takes her as his wife into her harem, into his harem. So you've got the, the actions of Abraham and Sarah. They're lying. You've got the actions of uh, Abimelech. He does what 
by the way, he's not rebuked for in this text. Nothing about what he does in his context with his knowledge is sinful. For you, it would be different. For you to take another wife, it would be very different. For him, he does not have any text of Scripture to tell him that this is no good. Um, He's a pagan. He doesn't know the Lord yet. I think we'll probably spend eternity with this man. I think this is God pursuing Abimelech, among other things. But... Um, he's not rebuked for this thing. He takes her and he's going to say in the innocence and integrity of his heart. And God agrees with him. So he takes her as a wife, even though he already has several wives. You see his action, we see Abraham's action, Sarah's action. Now we're going to see God's action. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Because the woman whom you have taken... Uh, Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. By the way, literal Hebrew rendering, she is lorded over by a lord. You husbands, do what you want with that one. You wives, do what you want with that one. It's literal Hebrew rendering. She's lorded over by a lord. Isn't that amazing that God comes to Abimelech in a dream and doesn't say, you've been fooled, you need to go back. He says, you're a dead man. You've touched somebody else's wife. You've, You've taken her. Um, he, he rebukes him. So we would say, wait a second. Abraham is lying. Abimelech is not. But Abimelech is the one that's in danger of the judgment of God. And in fact, we're going to see he is under the judgment of God currently. What's going on there? It's not fair, we might say. And Abimelech does say that. Keep reading. Verse 4. Abimelech had not approached her. Very interesting. So he said, Lord... Will you kill an innocent people? Now, pop quiz. Who does that remind you of? God, will you sweep away the innocent with the guilty or the righteous with the wicked? Will you do that? Are you that kind of God that you would be so unjust? Who does Abimelech sound like? He sounds just like Abraham praying for Lot and praying for Sodom. God, you can't do this. It's unjust. So he says, will you kill and and watch? By the way, this text is so fascinating because you, if you read this text and let it read as it would read, you would not want to be neighbors with Abraham. You would want to be in the kingdom of Abimelech. This is a good dude. I say you wouldn't want to be neighbors with Abraham. You wouldn't because he would deceive you to protect himself. But you would want to be neighbors with him because he's under the protection of almighty God. But Abimelech strikes me as a really good king. Would you want to be concerned about, or would you want to live in a kingdom where the king is concerned not just about his own skin, but about his people? Look at what he says. Will you kill an innocent people? Is God going to come after all of his people? Abimelech is is concerned, and he's going to show concern again for his people. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she... Herself said, he is my brother. So he lied and she lied. And in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Now, we are New Testament Christians. And so what do you want to say to a man who stands before God and says, I'm innocent and I'm full of integrity? We want to talk about there's there's none good, there's none righteous, you're a sinner, you need mercy. But in this situation, God meets him right here and agrees with his assessment. Not that he's sinless, perfect, perfect before God, but that in this instance, he's not the grave sinner. Abraham and Sarah are. God said to him in the dream, yes, 
I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Isn't that amazing that God grants the motive and the integrity of the man, even though his action was off? Not only did he know that about him, God intervened on his behalf. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Ladies, there's a very helpful, which she, Sarah participated in the deception, but there's a very helpful um, uh, uh, principle here that Abraham should be the one who is protecting Sarah, but he doesn't. But God does come to her protection. He does come to rescue her. Sarah, by all intents and purposes, is had, but God shows up and he protects her. And he also protects Abimelech. I have kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. By the way, how did, he keep, how did God keep Abimelech from touching Sarah? It's probably a disease or a sickness that he put on Abimelech, his person, so that he could not consummate this new marriage. Now in verse 7, God says, it's amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't um, come away without a warning. He says, I know you're innocent. I've kept you from sinning against me. Now you have an obligation before me. Return this man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. It's an amazing thing what this prophet of God, how he um, how he represents God before a pagan deity. If I'm Abimelech, I'm saying, wait, God, this is your prophet? This liar? This is the one who's going to tell me what you're like? Well, Abimelech is going to learn quite a bit about the, the character of God by God's interaction and protection of an imperfect saint. Verse 8, so Abimelech, so you've got 1 through 7 is the, is the, is the deception and the taking Verses, uh, verses 8 through 13 is the rebuke and the humiliation. Like, so Abimelech is going to repent and he's also going to rebuke Abraham. Watch this. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and he called all his servants and told him all these things. Listen to me. This is amazing. Um, you are supposed to see a, a drastic uh, difference in comparison between Abimelech and his people and Sodom and their people. What happened when, when Lot came out and warned the people of Sodom? They said, get out of our way. We're going to do worse to you. Why are you our judge? They had no shame at all. Abimelech is called to account and immediately, he's like the men of Nineveh, immediately repents. Immediately repents publicly, calls all of his people together. Tells them what Abraham did. Tells them what he has done. Tells them what God has done. He told him all these things. And the men, listen to this, were very much afraid. Sodom, there's no fear of the Lord. Abraham is going to say, I assume there was no fear of the Lord. Abraham was dead wrong. They are filled with the fear of God. Then Abimelech called to Abraham. This is awesome. You have three questions that, that demonstrate that Abimelech is a kind man. He's a marvelous man. He really is. He asks three questions, and then Abraham gives three lame sauce excuses. No repentance. No like, hey, I'm really sorry. He just kind of excuses himself. Listen to the questions. First of all, 
He says, what have you done not to me, but to us? You've sinned against my whole people. Why did you do that? What have you done to us? Secondly, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Again, concern for his, for his people. I love this about Abimelech. When, when Pharaoh calls Abraham to account, there's no, um, there's no uh, conversation. There's no back and forth. It's like, why did you do this? What? T- take her and go. And he kicks him out. There's no conversation. Abimelech is asking questions that are drawing into this man who put him and his household at great risk before God. He's actually asking the question, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? It's a a really helpful principle when you're you're, uh, crossways with somebody. Ask yourself to, to, to determine whether or not you're humble in the conflict or prideful in the conflict. Are you willing to openly say, how did I sin against you? I want to know so that I can make it right. That's what Abimelech does. What, what did I do? Did I do something when you came in? How did I sin? So what have you done? How have I sinned that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And then in verse 10, the third, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did these things? You came among us and you must have seen that there was something off about us. What is it? This is him actually asking the prophet of God, speak in. What what did we do? What did we do? Now, watch Abraham in verse 11. Then Abraham said, dude, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. It's not what he says. Verse 1. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So the first, and it isn't an accurate explanation, Abraham has been... He has seen what happened to Sodom where there's no fear of the Lord. He's assuming he's going to meet with the same thing in, uh, in Gerar. There's not going to be any fear of the Lord and they're going to kill me because of my wife. So that's first. I didn't think there's no fear of God. But guess what? You were wrong. There was fear of the Lord. As soon as God spoke, Abimelech responded and so did all of his people. Secondly, besides... She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Um, So he says, what I told you is technically true. How does that float your boat? Like, uh, I mean, it was highly, highly nuanced speech. I made you, uh, I, I spoke in such a way that was true so that you would believe something that was not true. What is that? It's just deception. Same father, different mothers. And then he says something that smells like Aaron when Moses comes and says, what did you do that you made this calf? And he says, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Well, she, she, I mean, she just became my wife. Like, okay, was that an accident or did you want that to happen? Like, what is going on? But uh, it's all lame. I thought there was no fear. Uh, she really is my sister. And then in verse 13, this is really interesting. I'm not going to bet the farm on this, but I'll just give you what I think this text means. In verse 13, there's a, a grammatical weirdness here that I think explains why Abraham is journeying. In verse 13, he says, and when God, that's the word Elohim, which is a normal word to, to use of God or the divine counsel of angelic beings around God ruling the earth. 
Elohim. When Elohim, and then it says, caused me to wander, that cause is in third person, uh, third person plural. They, which is not the way we speak about God. We say, when Elohim, he caused me to wander. I don't think Abraham is talking about the Father God. I think he's talking about, and again, I'm not going to fight anybody for this, angelic beings that are over certain areas that are uh, directing the affairs of men. And he's saying, they caused me to wander from my father's house. Like that there was not just the, the divine imperative on Abraham, which there certainly was that, but there were also um, unseen realm battles going on. And when God when so, so the text would literally read, when the gods, when they caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which you come. Say of me, he is my brother. So he describes this as common practice. So either one of two things. This is either the common practice of Abraham, and it just happened a whole lot more, and we, ha- we only get two stories of it. Or this is another lie, because he's only done it twice. But either way, Abraham doesn't strike you as a man who is like, Radically trusting the faithfulness of God and and doing what is right. So you have the taking in one through seven. You have the the repentance and the rebuke in um, in eight through thirteen, and then in fourteen and following, you have restitution that the good guy in the story is going to do even more good to Abram and Sarah. Listen to what he says in verse fourteen. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, this is fascinating. Remember what Pharaoh did. Get out. He gives him a bunch of stuff and he says, get out of here. It's dangerous because God had caused a plague to fall on Pharaoh. Now uh, we're expecting Abimelech to give a bunch of stuff and say, get out. He does the exact opposite. Behold. My land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. It's amazing. Do you know what Abimelech knows now? He knows that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's a humble, a truly humble man. Do you remember the story where Jesus is walking and a Syrophoenician woman comes and says, Help, Lord, my daughter is demon-possessed. And Jesus ignores her. And all the disciples come and they don't intercede on her behalf and say, Lord, help this woman. They say, send her away. She's screaming after us. There's no compassion and no care. Jesus finally stops and he says, uh, she, she says, help me. And he says, it's not right for me to give food from the, from the table of the, of the children to the dogs. What would you say if you come to Christ and say, help me? And he says, you're a Gentile dog. No. What do you say? Forget it then. I'll, I'll do whatever I can. She humbles herself and she says, Lord, even the dogs can eat the scraps. Just help me. And Jesus says, he marvels at her faith. She has much more faith than anyone. And I think what Jesus is doing there is exposing the hard-heartedness of his Jewish followers and exposing his heart for any who would not take offense at Christ. It's what he says to, to John the Baptist when John says, do we wait for somebody else? He says, tell them what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the, the deaf hear, the mute speak, and blessed is everyone who does not take offense at me. 
Abimelech has every right to take offense at Abraham and say, get out. He doesn't do that. He knows Abraham's wrong, but he also knows that Abraham is in covenant with God and that God is going to bless everyone who blesses Abraham and God is going to curse everyone who curses Abraham. And so he doesn't take offense. He says, dwell wherever it pleases you. And then in verse 16, this is marvelous. To Sarah, he said. So he takes Sarah from Abraham. And now he says, behold, I have given. And watch the, I think this is a sarcastic sort of playful uh, exchange. Behold, I have given your brother. What's the problem? She's not his brother. She's his wife. He's... He's joking with them. You, you, this is how you said he was your brother. I gave your brother a thousand pieces of silver, just so you know. So we get the scope. A thousand sounds like a lot. It's not a lot. It's staggering. At this time in Babylon, a day, a, a day laborer, a common, a common laborer, would get half of a shekel per month for his labor. And she just got, or her brother just got a thousand pieces of silver. And then he says, it's very grammatically mysterious what this means. I think I know what it means, but again, I'm not going to fight anybody for it. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone. uh, And before everyone, you are vindicated. If you look at the textual note down at the bottom of your Bible, in Hebrew it says, quote, it is a covering of eyes for all. There is a strong chance that what Abimelech is saying is, I gave your brother a whole lot of money. Now, dadgummit, go buy the covering that says you're a man's wife. Stop walking around like you are free. You need to take up the garb of a married woman so everybody, nobody steps into the same trap. And so that's kind of the joke and the irony there. But he vindicates her before everyone. You are vindicated. And then Abraham, verse 17, it's marvelous. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. So sickness has come to Abimelech and that's, I think, the means that God used to keep Abimelech from sinning against God to keep uh, and to ultimately to bring Abimelech to God. But it's God healed Abimelech. He also healed his wife. And his female slaves, so that they bore children. So that kind of gives us a time stamp there. This is not, uh, they've been there for some time. They've been there for long enough to know that either or both his wives are not conceiving or they are pregnant and cannot give birth. But it's a, it's a dire situation. Abraham prays to God and God heals all of them. And then in verse 18, amazing. He's been called Elohim, 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 verse 18, for Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Okay, so what? I've got points. I've got some some things about this text that point us to, to understand Christ, point us towards Christ. And then some that apply to us, I'll do the application to us first. First of all, Abraham is just like us. He's just like you. And he's just like me. If you, one of my favorite 
professors said, or favorite pastors said, if you read this text and you say, Abraham, how could you do that again? You, just like Abraham, are practicing deception, but the deception is being run on yourself. Do you not know the experience of sinning masterfully before God, having received his grace and his power and his provision, and then finding yourself months or years later doing the same thing that you know you shouldn't do? Of course you do, and of course I do, because we in the story are like Abraham. He's just like us. Secondly, this is marvelous. The privilege of prayer is not just for the good days. Abraham has blown it. And God says, I will not act until he bows his knee and prays to me. You and I feel just the opposite. We feel like, man, when I've had a great day, I can go to the Lord and I can pray and I can be heard and he'll answer. But when we fail, like our besetting sin, old habits die hard and we fall into it again. Satan comes in to say God was there and he saw it and there's no way you can approach his throne of grace and ask for help. There's no way he'll hear you favorably and do what you're asking. This text says the exact opposite. Does God say when Abraham repents and then he prays for you, I will listen? No, he says return his wife so that he will pray for you and then I'll answer his prayer. The privilege of prayer is not just for the good days. When you fall on your face, Satan, fear, all of those things tempt you not to pray. Go just the opposite direction, pray. Thirdly, sanctification uh, is, an, is undulation. Okay, there's three parts of distinct movements in your salvation and mine, a salvation that's totally of the grace of God by, the, by faith alone. It is justification, which happens at a moment when you hear the gospel, you hear your sin, you hear the mercy of God in Christ, and you, having believed that promise, you are justified, pronounced, you are justified. Abraham was justified by his faith in Genesis 15. So that's justification. And then you enter this process called sanctification where you become who you already are in Christ. You are in Christ the righteousness of God now positionally, but conditionally or the experience of your life, uh, sanctification is becoming more and more like Christ. But you need to understand that it is undulating. Maybe you are weird like me, but I love fail videos. I love people failing at life. And so one of the things that you see is countless beach fails where People don't realize that the coast and the waves are undulating, right? So in, in Latin, you're told, unda, unda, undi, wave. It's a wave. And so the, the, the ocean sucks out and some goon runs down to the water's edge because he thinks this is where it's going to be forever. And then there's a 30-foot swell that comes and just crushes it because he didn't know that it's an undulating thing. It's a it's a flow and an ebb and a flow and an ebb and we think our Christian life is one step at a time in always the right direction and so we despair when we take five steps and then we find out I failed worse than I've ever done right mountaintop valley and, and, and the mountaintops get higher the valleys can get lower we need to understand so so 
when you look at the life of Abraham and the process of Abraham, the progress of Abraham, you see his character undulating. You see him at times masterfully um, courageous, right? He go, the man goes to war to, to protect Lot. And then here he's not going to go to war to protect his wife, who's supposed to have a baby in a year. And now she's in the harem of a man. And he doesn't fight. He just lets her be taken. It's like undulation. We can take great hope in that because you are going to experience the same thing. You're going to experience undulation. You're going to experience great times and you're going to experience great sin as well. And so again, favorite professor said, favorite pastor said, um, God does not command you to do anything that he won't do himself. Did you know that? He won't command you to do anything that he won't do himself. And so how many times are you supposed to forgive your brother, Peter? If he sins against you the same time again and again, seven, like, can I draw the line at seven and move on from there? And what does Jesus say about the same thing again and again and again and again, 70 times seven. That's how much God is going to forgive. He forgave Abraham when he was in Egypt. He's going to forgive him here because that's the type of God we worship. So those things apply to us. Now, a few things that from this text that point us to Christ, God's promises are conditionless promises. At what point does God come in and say, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you so long as you are honest before men. He doesn't say that. They are conditionless promises. And so in this text, uh, Christ is husband to the husbandless. He is God to the godless. He is faithful to the faithless. He is father to the fatherless. All of these things, right? He's husband to the husbandless. Sarah needs a husband. She is married to a man that commands an army that was able to take out uh, um, allied foreign powers that were so powerful they held the land of Canaan in subjection. And when the Canaanites rebelled, they came in and conquered them and took them captive. They were very powerful And Sarah is married to a man who gathered warriors from his own household, went to those nations and whipped them in open battle. And now she's in the harem of a a foreign king and she's wondering, why don't you fight for me, you turd? Well, Christ was husband to the husbandless. He doesn't he shows up to Abimelech and, and shows that for however many days or weeks or months, he's been protecting Sarah. He is God of the godless. Abimelech does not know the Lord until these verses. He shows up to him in a dream and Abimelech now knows the Lord because of Abraham. He is faithless. He is faithful to the faithless. Abraham is practicing faithlessness. God remains faithful. Secondly, God has cosmic purpose and plans in Christ. Okay, do you understand this? That like... God has a plan in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. This is his plan. And because that's the case, his plans in Christ involve his people. So two axioms. God has cosmic plans in Christ and his plans involve the people of Christ. So notice this is the this is the mistake of dispensationalism that says like, look, Christ, uh, when he ascended into heaven, 
the kingdom is put on ice and we just kind of suffer and die and, and get people saved. And then at the very end, he's going to come and he's going to defeat all enemies, which is in direct contrast to what Christ said about his people. This is my church. I will build it. The gates of hell won't stand. He says to his church, you go and disciple the nations. God has cosmic plans in Christ and his plans involve his people. There is expectation on us. There's expectation on Abraham. Therefore, so those two axioms have a therefore. Therefore, you are in the cosmic plans of Christ. Even when you don't act right. This is a marvelous truth. It's a marvelous truth. Your life matters because God has plans in Christ and his plans involve his people. You are his people and therefore your life matters. But listen to me. Sometimes we say, okay, I I get all that. But when I fail or when I go rogue... I just screw it all up. Well, don't, not so fast. Think about right here, Abraham screws it up. And because of his screwing up, Abimelech and his people come, I believe, to know the Lord. It's just like with Jonah. Get up, go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up and he goes in the opposite direction. And when he goes in the opposite direction, a whole bunch of sailors that are not a part of the story, if he obeys, come to know God. They come to know the true and living God. And... Jonah gets eaten by a fish. He gets swum over to Nineveh. That's probably the wrong deal. Vomited up on the shores of a nation that's founding mythology is that a god came up out of the Euphrates, I believe it was, and founded Nineveh. And so here comes this man who's vomited up by a fish and he comes preaching repentance and becomes the most successful prophet in the history of the world. And it's not even close. He just walks around and says, you're all going to die in 40 days. And every one of them gets saved. They all, from the the greatest of them to the least of them, even their animals are donned in sackcloth and ashes. And Jesus says, those men will rise up in the judgment against the Jews of his day who rejected Christ who was greater than Jonah. All of those things to say, when you screw it up, that does not negate the plans of God to use even your screw-ups to draw men to his son, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there is a reason we are commanded not to fear. Abraham said, I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife, right? They don't fear the Lord, and they'll kill me. If I'm afraid of being killed, and so I start to practice deception, what is that called? It's called walking by fear. There's a reason we're commanded not to fear. Fear clouds out faith. Fear clouds out history. We forget what God has already done. You, you, you are not, Abraham is not trusting. Look, God said, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I'm not in any danger here, so I'm going to be upright. I'm going I'm to protect my wife. Fear clouds out history. I've been here before. God was faithful before. Fear magnifies danger, whether it's real or imagined. I I, I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place. Well, you're wrong. And you don't need to be afraid. Fear magnifies enemies, either real or imagined. So Abram is walking by fear. And so all of these things are are causing him to, to do what is not right. And he doesn't, need to do, he doesn't need to do any of those things, which is why we are commanded more than any other command in all of, all of the Bible not to be afraid. Do not fear. Fourthly and lastly, our character, our character is not the grounds of our relationship with God. 
Your character and mine is just not the grounds for your relationship with God, which is great news. And all God's people said yes and amen, because my character is fickle, faithful some days, faithless other days. And if that's the ground of my relationship with God, then I have a relationship with God on my good days. I lose it on my bad days. That's not the ground. I'm going to close with a quote from one of the greatest men who's ever lived. Listen to this about these very things. Beloved, there is this about the covenant of grace, that it does not depend in any degree at all upon man. For if you will notice, the bow is put in the cloud, but it does not say, and when ye shall look upon the bow, ye shall remember my covenant, and then I will not destroy the earth. But it is gloriously put, not upon our memory, which is fickle and frail, but upon God's memory, which is infinite and immutable. The bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant. Oh, it is not my remembering God, it is God's remembering me. It is not my laying hold of his covenant, but his covenant laying hold on me. Glory be to God. The whole of the bulwarks are secured, and even the minor towers which we may fancy might have been left to man, all are guarded by divine strength. Even the remembrance of the covenant is not left to our memories, for we might forget, but our Lord cannot. He will not forget the saints whom he has graven on the palms of his hands. Did you write your name on God's hands? No, you didn't. You couldn't reach him. Your name is graven on his hands in Christ because he did it. Amazing. It is with us today as it was with Israel and Egypt. The blood was upon the lintel and upon the two side posts. But God did not say, when you see the blood, I will pass over you. No, no, no. But when I see the blood, I will pass over you. My looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace. But it is God's looking to Jesus which secures my salvation and that of all his elect. For it is impossible for our God to look at Christ, our bleeding surety, and then be angry with us for our sin that he has already punished in Christ. I'm going to read that a thousand times for the good of your soul. My looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace. God's looking to Jesus, which secures my salvation. It is impossible for our God to look at Christ, our bleeding surety, and then be angry with with us for sins he has already punished in Christ. No, dear friends, it is not left with us even to be saved by remembering the covenant. There is no Lindsay Woolsey here. I had to look that up. Lindsay Woolsey is um, mixed cloth. You have a cheaper cloth. You have a more expensive cloth. You do some of it in expensive cloth and you weave in some lesser, lesser cloth. Spurgeon says, there's no Lindsay Woolsey here. Not a single thread of creature mars the fabric. Here we have pure gold, not an atom of alloy. It is not of man, neither by man, but of the Lord alone. We should remember the covenant and we shall do it through divine grace. But the hinge of the matter does not lie there. It is God's remembering us, not our remembering him. And all God's people said, amen. Lord, we thank you.
that when we are forgetful, you remember. We thank you that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. We thank you for the, for the pictures of divine grace that follow your, your, the people who are in covenant with you. And we pray that you would grant, Lord, that we would take the same hope that, that Abraham um, enjoyed. That when he should have been more courageous, when he should have been more truthful, you were still faithful and you used his failures to draw more people to you. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Help us, Lord, not to take that as license to sin, but help us take it as a deep encouragement when we fall upon our face. We thank you, Lord, for the truth, uh, the truth that you call us, you meet us in our failures and you call us out and you'll do it for eternity if need be. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.